The World Mission Society Church of God has been given one of the highest honors by the Office of the President of the United States to volunteers. And here to talk about this great recognition is Cassie Goldspring and Eddie Albanez. Thank you so much for being here. Eddie, I want to bring you in World Mission Society Church of God. Tell me about your church and when we talk about your title signifies that you guys are global. Yes, that's correct. So that's why it's called World Mission Society Church of God. And we have over 8,000 churches in 175 countries all around the world. Welcome back to another thing. I'm Larry Menti. Religious cults right in our own backyard. They may preach volunteerism, but investigations, including one by the Today Show, charge that the World Mission Society Church of God frightens people into joining with predictions of doomsday and presses for big donations of money. One woman said the church in Ridgewood, New Jersey, made her stay there all the time, discouraging her from using the internet. She got out, her husband didn't. Joining us with more now is cult expert Rick Ross, author of Cults Inside Out, how people get in and how people get out. Sir, thank you so much, I appreciate you being here. Thank Let's you. start with the very basics. You hear this word thrown around a lot. What is a cult? Well, I think there is a core or nucleus for a definition of a destructive cult, which is number one, uh, and the single most salient feature is a charismatic leader who is worshipped by the group, who becomes an object of worship and has no meaningful accountability. Number two, that the group has a process of coercive persuasion that engenders dependency upon that leader to make value judgments and breaks down their ability to critically and independently think. And it basically gives the group undue influence over their life. And then finally, that the leader and the group use uh, that authority, that influence to exploit and do harm or abuse members. Let's talk specifically about this cult in New Jersey and in Jenkintown, Pennsylvania. Um, are they dangerous? Would you consider them dangerous? Well, I don't consider the World Mission Society Church of God physically dangerous. I, I think they've, they've caused relationships to break down, divorces, uh, people have gone bankrupt because they've given the group too much money. But is the group violent? Is it stockpiling weapons? No. We, we asked for a representative of the group to come in and defend themselves, and, and they turned us down. They did not want to be here. Stephen, give us a sense of the difference between a religious cult and traditional religions as we all know them. Well, the concern that I have, Sonia, is with groups that are authoritarian pyramid regimes with someone at the top who claims absolute power and absolute control and that uses deception and mind control techniques to keep members dependent and obedient. They want to remove the free will within their members and, and, and keep them under tow, whereas legitimate religions, even though they may have unorthodox beliefs, respect people's free will. They do not use deception. They do not use hypnosis and phobia indoctrination and behavior modifications and techniques like sleep deprivation and privacy deprivation and dietary manipulation. But uh, the issue for me is more the practices of a group that characterize it as a destructive cult rather than the beliefs. We had a chance to speak with students here on campus. Many of them say that they have seen a group of people here on campus handing out religious material. Some students say that that group is peaceful, while others say that group is pushy and took it too far. Well, today, campus police put four people on a criminal trespass list. School officials are warning students about aggressive religious solicitors on campus. Really just makes you uncomfortable. Tuesday, University of Memphis officials sent this letter out to students saying, quote, the university is aware of the recent presence of several individuals on campus who have been approaching students and aggressively attempting to discuss religion and distribute literature. One handout is titled, do all things testify about God the Mother? You don't know what they're talking about. You try to like, you know, show interest and give time and then it seems like they want more. I feel like there's like a difference between like you're just standing there talking about it and then like you're actively like being in people's faces trying to make them take stuff. of chapter two of the Staff of Moses. It's titled, The Bride Does Not Refer to the Saints, But Their Mother. Um, let me just read this little section here. 
the WMSCOG and the staff of Moses say this, if the bride were the saints, as they insist, they would have to bring out biblical evidence that indicates the heavenly Jerusalem as us, the saints. Do you guys have any thoughts on that there? So basically they're saying, if you wanna say that the saints um, are the bride, then there has to be biblical evidence that somewhere in the Bible, the heavenly Jerusalem refers to us, the saints. Well, in Hebrews chapter 12, and I'm sure Kelsey will give an explanation Hebrews here. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 22 through 24. Yeah, okay. yep, yep, yep. So I know they're going to have their spin on this. But the author of Hebrews says, But you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to the myriads of angels, to the general assembly, church of the firstborn, who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, the spirits of righteous men made perfect. Or, you know, King James would say, just men made perfect. So... In the Christian view, we would see that, you know, in the Old Testament, Jerusalem was like the central place in God's, you know, spiritual plan in Israel. And there was like, it was some, there was a symbolic, you know, spiritual Jerusalem, a heavenly Jerusalem, just like there was a, a Mount Zion, the eastern slope of Jerusalem, you know, the ridge right there where David was set up. Um, you'd also have, you know, a spiritual Zion too. Um, we would say that uh, the heavenly Jerusalem over here is the dwelling place of God. You find that in Revelation. Uh, is it uh, 21? Yeah. 21.3. It talks about the dwelling place of God, you know, that city. So we would say that mm -hmm. the, the heavenly Jerusalem is this, this, the dwelling place of God. It is the place where dead saints go to be with the Lord. And then that city will descend to earth, uh, as you find in Revelation. Um, and we can read verses on that too as well. Yeah. Yeah, I yeah. think the heavenly, the heavenly Jerusalem, Jerusalem itself is always, again, it's like this representative uh, uh, of the saints of God, like, like the true people of God. Um, and so when you, you add in like this concept of the heavenly Jerusalem, Again, what I see with that is is Revelation is apocalyptic literature. And so there's just, you you have to enter into Revelation with an assumption that there's going to be so much symbol, like there's going to be a lot of symbolism, a lot of allegory, a lot of uh, uh, things like that. And so this is, when we get to the new Jerusalem, this heavenly city that's shaped in a cube and it's coming down out of heaven, like there's so much symbolic imagery in this that, that, uh, we, we, I think it's so important to keep that in mind first. Second, I think we have biblical precedents to, to kind of come into this, this idea of the new Jerusalem, the heavenly Jerusalem, assuming that this Jerusalem, again, who is the bride, is a symbolic uh, picture of the people of God, like the perfected new creation of God. And so when I, you know, as they say, you would have to, I don't think they would argue that you could say the saints are are said to be Jerusalem in the Bible. I think what they have a problem with is is the heavenly Jerusalem. Like where in the Bible is heavenly Jerusalem said to be the saints? And I'd simply say, well, Jerusalem is the saints. And so when it in Revelation speaks about a heavenly Jerusalem, I think it's just talking about that aspect of how this is this is this is the saints of God in perfection. This is like when when God's purpose for mankind has reached its final culmination. Second Corinthians five talks about how we are new creations in Christ. We're no longer from below, but we have been born of God. Like we are born from above. So in a sense, we are now sit, we are citizens of heaven. And so I think um, there's this sense in which when it talks about heavenly Jerusalem coming down out of heaven, uh, like you have to put in all this imagery, all this scripture about the church. Again, we are citizens of heaven now. We are not of this earth. We, we have died to sin. We have died to the world. We no longer belong to it. We belong to heaven. And so I think it's perfectly reasonable to see this new Jerusalem, who's the saints, coming down out of heaven, again, symbolically representing this, this perfection that God has uh, this, this, again, you re referenced earlier how God wants to purify his bride, make her pure and spotless without 
uh, blemish. And when you see this new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven, that is that. That's the culmination of it. That's the symbolic imagery of the church of God having been completed. God has sanctified and cleansed her. And now she is being presented to, to Christ as this spotless bride. White linen. Um, and so white linen, which is, which is the righteous acts of the saints, represents these things that the saints have, have done in, in uh, fellowship with Jesus, these good works they've That's done. Right. But one thing, one thing that I think that is that would be helpful for members is defining, um, at least in the case of you know Revelation twenty one and, and and nineteen, is the the bride the heavenly Jerusalem? Is that referring to a person or is that referring to a place in which God's people will go to, or is it both? I have Revelation open right here. I was about to read that and piggybacking on what oh. you you were saying right there. You know, in Revelation twenty one verse twenty two. John writes, I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, holy city, coming down out of heaven from God. So like I said a minute ago in Hebrews 12, the New Jerusalem is the dwelling place of God, right? Where the just men made perfect, the saints have gone to be with God after they died in his presence, okay? Coming down out of heaven from God, uh, made uh, ready as a bride adorned for husband, the idea of adorning and the idea of this, you know, like Ephesians 5 uh, without a blemish and the idea of the white linens. She was adorned for husband. If you skip down to verse 9 then, it says in Revelation 21, 9, then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last place came and spoke with me saying, come here and I will show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. I will show you the bride. So now we're going to see who that bride is. Verse 10, and he carried me away in the spirit to a great and high mountain and showed me an elderly Korean woman, uh, New Jerusalem, coming down from heaven from God. <laughs> My Bible didn't have that. <laughs> so it's, you know, it's nice to take your typologies and stuff, but let the scripture speak for themselves. You know, let, you know, these, like you said last week, the complex terms be you know explained by the more clear ones and let me say this like i was thinking about this today like how one of the as christians you know for us everything is about pointing to christ you know we say the old testament pointed towards christ the job of the holy spirit even is to point towards christ the church always points towards christ uh in catholicism for example they take your eyes off Christ and put on someone else, Mary. You know, a lot of different organizations, they'll, they'll take your eyes off Christ and they try to substitute with something else all the time. And here you have this Korean woman, you're looking at her instead of looking at Christ as a counterfeit. And, you know, right. people in the church, you know, if you are, you know, looking at anywhere but Christ, you know, you're not following things the way that you're supposed to follow. You know, just to be blunt. I mean, you know, everything is pointing right. towards Christ. He is, you mm -hmm. know, the end of everything, the teleology in that sense of what we're supposed to be focused in on, not anyone else, any woman, any imaginary second deity or anything. Right. right. And to add to that, too, is that um, it's not just that they, you know, they're diverting attention away from Christ. They're actively telling actively teaching their congregation, G Jesus cannot save you. Yes. It's not just right. that they're distracting you with the idea of God the Mother. They're saying God the Mother exists and Jesus is not your Savior. They say it very directly. Which is what takes it to this whole other level, even beyond Mormons and Jehovah's Witnesses and like the severity of what they are doing and saying. I think it's important to not overemphasize this being a place. Like this is, this is heaven. Uh, this place that we go to, I, I think there's an aspect of that, but I think heaven on earth, I think, I think we have to understand that this is, there is so much symbolism in here relating to the, the saints, the people of God. Um, like if you look for Revelation 21, 23, it says, the city has no need for the sun or moon to shine. The very glory of God lighted it and its lamp is the lamb. So, so my question is from this, I, I see this immediately as an indication that this city is a symbolic representation of the saints of God perfected and purified because if the city is mother God, then why does it need another source as its light? Notice again in Revelation 20, 123, it says that the very glory of God lighted it and its lamp is the lamb. So this, this city needs this outside source to light it. 
It needs this outside source, which is Jesus, uh, who is lighting the city. And so if this is Mother God, why does it need, why does she need Jesus as a source of light? Um, and and who who is it biblically that needs a source, an outside source of light? Well, we do. I do. <laughs> you do. The saints do. Uh, God is our light. Psalm 27 says, the Lord is my light and my salvation. Right. Uh, so God is our light, just as God is the light for the heavenly Jerusalem. And so that's just, that's one place where you just see that this symbolic imagery of God being the light of the city, that, that to me, that's an immediate obvious indication that this is the people of God whose source is God himself as the very light of that city, which again, is just the collective saints of God in this new creation. I have a couple more problems theologically with this uh, group too. <clears throat> so, you know, in their eschatology, the doctrine of the last things, you know, they have another couple of really problematic areas too. So we would say that, you know, heaven comes to earth, like you see here, clearly here, kind of goes back to Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, the meek shall inherit the earth because it'll be a paradise earth restored. Right. And it's gonna, also, it's going to be a mm, physical yeah. world where they'll, you know, where we'll have that order. Yes. Well, in the church of God, they don't believe that. They believe that, you know, we before coming to earth in our pre-earth life, we lived in the kingdom of heaven, which is a spiritual world. We finally, you know, went to the prison of earth, which is a physical world. And then we're going to eventually live in a, back in a spiritual world. This earth is going to be burned up new heavens, new earth, but it's going to be a spiritual world. So they don't believe we're going to live in eternity on a physical plane. We're going to be back in a spiritual right. plane, just like we lived before we came here in the kingdom of heaven. Yeah. The future kingdom of heaven is going to be a spiritual plane. And then to us as Christians, you know, it's, it's borderlines on blasphemy to us that your church, if you're a member, teaches that you're going to become creators one day. It sounds like Mormonism a lot that, you know, your church teaches that, you know, man will progress, you know, they don't come right out and say, you know, you're going to become gods. But, you know, uh, mother has spoken in her sermons plenty about how, you know, we're going to have like wings like angels, like 10 miles wide. Mm -hmm. And we're going to be able to travel across the universe with the speed of thought. And we're going to be able to create our own planets and people and animals. And, you know, mm -hmm. this is the whole eschatology in the afterlife that they're getting at, which is very opposite of what we're seeing here. We're going to live on a paradise earth, serving the Lord, physical world, not like a bunch of creators out in a spiritual yeah. plane existence. Kelsey, you have any comments to confirm that this is exactly what you've been taught while you were in the organization? That's exactly, exactly what I've been taught. Exactly. I mean, yeah, when she gives her sermon, she says that when we go to to heaven you know like exactly like you just mentioned we're going to be able to fly we're going to be able to move like you know at the speed of light we're going to be able to you know create our planets we even made jokes like oh i'll invite you to my come over to my planet you know when we go to heaven like <laughs> yes you know? it's, it's, i mean it's, and, and even and even even um what it was like probably 2010 when we had the the 10 talents movement which was where we had to recruit 10 people to come into the church and these people had to recruit people and everybody's tithing um back when we had that movement um those who bore uh 10 talents they received an award from god the mother and it was like um I don't remember if they were coins or something, but each each item represented a, a planet that you're going to get in heaven. Unbelievable. So, wow. Um, okay. you know, it says in Luke so, 21, we're going to be sons of the resurrection. That's it. You know, right. we're going to be, we're not going to be creators. We're just going to be sons of the resurrection. That's, that's about the extent of it in the new order. And that's a huge point, Steve, that man, that would be that would be a fun to dive into in a video because I think this is a common misconception, not only in this group, but but I think even a lot of Christians have this idea of heaven, like, you know, we're gonna be, you know, bouncing around on fluffy clouds, playing harps. And it's like that sounds silly, but I think literally like people just don't really understand this concept of heaven. And what I think they don't get is the biblical emphasis on how like earthy heaven is. That that Literally, what what did, what did we just read in Revelation? It says, I saw the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God. And then uh, above that in Revelation, uh, well, Revelation 21, 3 says, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man, and he will dwell with them, 
they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. Again, it says God will himself dwell in the city. He will be the light. And so this isn't this I, revelation in the Bible just simply don't give this idea that like the final outcome is that we're all going to be swept away into this cloud like spiritual atmosphere. The final biblical outcome is that this 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 earth like we're going to be here. We're going to be resurrected with physical bodies that eat and drink and do I think many of the same things we do today, but the world it'll I think it'll be new. It'll be made new. It'll be washed clean. The curse in Genesis 3 will be removed. Exactly. It ends with the, uh, God will wipe away every tear. There will be no more death, pain, crying. So basically, I mean, if you want to if you want to summarize this, and again, this is a whole this is a whole other video to make. Um, and so so maybe let's mm -hmm. let's move it off is. this quickly, but <laughs> but it's like it's really it's just Genesis. It's like this this perfect creation. God created everything. Every day he said it is good. It is good. It is good. It is good. Then you have the curse that that brought in where the creation, in a sense, became bad. Death and sin. Death, sin, where the, the creation became corrupted or, or cursed. I think what we're seeing in Revelation is we're seeing all of that done away with, and we're seeing this, this Garden of Eden-like state returning to the earth. But I want to go through, I'm going to quickly move through this. We have... Uh, these few things I want to look at just as um, as points, I think, to, to think about in relation to the description of this city, the description put on the city of the New Jerusalem um, in Revelation uh, 21, and, and good indications why you should believe, I think, and think that this is a reference to the saints. And then, obviously, we, we I think we need to finish with Galatians 4. We're going to get to Galatians 4 in a minute because that's a, uh, something they they pretty heavily emphasize at the end of chapter two of the staff of Moses. But let me just walk through these quickly. And, and um, you know, if you have a few comments on these guys, you feel free to share those, but I'll try to move through them quickly. So in Revelation 21, 12 through 13, it says that the city had a great and high wall. In the wall were 12 gates. At the gates were 12 angels. They had names written on them, the names of the 12 tribes of the children of Israel. There were three gates on the east, three gates on the north, three gates on the south, and three gates on the west. This is, there's so much packed into this. Uh, and obviously, again, you have to understand the symbolic imagery going on here, um, that John is describing something he saw using uh, symbolic imagery. And so the 12 tribes here, I think, represent all God's people who are the true children of God's spiritual Israel. And so we see this, this, this like city being described with all these allusions to the 12 tribes of Israel, uh, the 12 angels, which I think you could go back in the first several chapters of Revelation, isn't there a reference to like the 12 angels of the churches? Um, and so it's referencing like the, the city is made up of the people of God, like the, these summarizations of the 12 tribes, the 12 angels. It's like all these biblical references to the people of God, like that is what makes up the gates of this city. Um, and so in Revelation 21, 14, it says that the wall of the city had 12 foundations. And this is a big one right here. The wall of the city had 12 foundations. On the foundations were 12 names the names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. Okay, and now think about this. In Ephesians 2.20, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 20, in speaking of the church, Paul said that the church, the people of God, have been built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. So here in Revelation, we see this city that is that we are saying this is the saints, this is the, the church, and we're saying these, and Revelation is saying the foundations of the city is the 12 apostles. You look back in Ephesians 2.20 where Paul is clearly speaking about the church. And he says that the church, its foundation is built upon the 12 apostles. If you do not see the connection here, then I think you are, you're just willfully cl closing your eyes. I mean, there's an obvious connection here being made. Well, I think the WMS would agree with, you know, that we are built on the foundation of the apostles in Christ. I mean, they use that verse when they, they preach or when they when they preach weeds and wheat, which is a subject to show that they use to show that they are the true church. So they would agree that we are, you know, our faith is based on the, you know, 
uh, but they want it. The but they want to see the connection when Revelation is saying that the city is built upon that foundation. To me, like that's an obvious connection because right. this city, New Jerusalem, right. no, which we is don't the read bride these of Christ. Verses. Yeah, you don't read these verses. <laughs> we don't read okay. these ones. <laughs> yeah. So, so again, like the question would be, why? Why is the foundation of the New Jerusalem built upon the twelve apostles? Like, is, does Mother God is her foundation what she is built upon? Is it the the twelve apostles? Uh, no. So, okay, and another point where I think you see good reason to believe that the the city, the New Jerusalem is the church, is something that you, a verse you just mentioned, Kelsey, so Revelation 21, 22, I did not see a temple in the city for the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb are its temple. So the city, this New Jerusalem, doesn't have a physical temple because God and the Lamb are its temple. This is an obvious allusion to the saints, the church, who to, who today we do not have or need a physical temple because Christ dwells in us directly. Colossians 1.27 uh, talks mm-hmm. about how Christ dwells in us multiple places. talks about how we are in Christ uh, and, and in the Father. So our bodies, we are the temple of God. He dwells in us through the Holy Spirit. So when I when I see this, again, this imagery in Revelation saying this city doesn't need a physical temple because God is the temple, God dwells in it, I, that I can't help but just think of that, that the imagery you see all throughout the New Testament, that Christ is in us, that Christ dwells mm-hmm. in us. And that's why we no longer need this temple to go and meet with God and find his presence in a temple because now God dwells in us. Like that's what Jesus accomplished on the cross is he um, just eliminated this this separation from him. Um, well, and so, oh, sorry. Go ahead. No, go ahead. Well, that's, I mean, that's why I wanted to bring up this verse is because, again, the, the church uses this verse to say that, you know, the, this bride, this heavenly Jerusalem is not an actual city. They use this verse to show that. But again, it says, verse 22, I did not see a temple in the city. It doesn't say I did not see a city. It just says, I do not right. see a temple in the city. Right. And that's that's pretty important for the church. I know to, to someone outside the church, it's like, mm, but, you know, it's a, it's a very important detail for the church. That it, it is, well, I mean, when you read verse uh, verses uh, 15 through 21, I mean, it's clearly describing a city. So let me make a, let me make an important, another important point that I think we just got to make on that is Ong Song Hong in his book, The Problems with the New Jerusalem, the Bride and the Women's Veils. Um, let me see where this is. This is chapter, um, it would be chapter eight of that book. Listen to what he says. The new Jerusalem, which is written of in Revelation 21, one through four, the tabernacle of God abides with human beings. However, this tabernacle is a spiritual building, not a person. So, I mean, it's just, it's ridiculous, it. guys, over and over and over. It's like every point that the WMSCOG makes this solid stance Ong Song Hong like made made the exact opposite stance uh, until so he's dead, just, and then he can't yeah. argue, and they can bring. And now he can't guys. defend himself, right? Unbelievable. So who do you want to believe, the WMS or Ong Song Hong? Exactly. How about the Bible? So, <laughs> so right. I think yeah, or that yeah. Um, so another reason to believe that this New Jerusalem is the saints or the church is because Jerusalem in the Old Testament always refers to the people of God. It's always this reference uh, to the people of God. And this is something I'm going to say, you know, there's like Micah 1.9, you could go there. There, This is something where I don't want to just proof text this and pull a few verses here and there out. This is something where I just say, just go to the Old Testament, read it for yourself, and you're going to find that the the Jerusalem is always being referenced. It's people like this reference right. to God's people. So it's a theme. So the have it's a theme. The right. Jerusalem kind of thing. Yeah. Yes. Right. And so uh, the heavenly Jerusalem simply speaks of the redeemed people of God and those who are true Israel. Uh, so you can go to Romans two twenty eight to to look more to that. So the heavenly Jerusalem symbolizes those in Christ who have been made new creations, that's 2 Corinthians 5, 17. The new creation and the heavenly Jerusalem is made up of the body of believers who are new creations. And so I think what you're seeing all this like glorious imagery put to this, this city, and that's just because this is a representation of the glorious people of God who have finally been made perfect, fully sanctified, and are now this perfect representation of the image of God in the earth. 
And Jordan, let me, here's, here's a funny thing yeah, though. So there's kind of like the th- couple of themes. One is like the theme of Jerusalem is like, you know, God's people and like the heavenly Jerusalem is God's abode. And then the idea of, I was looking at verses like about the idea of the theme of, you know, Israel and the church being the bride of Christ. And I came across Isaiah 54 verse five. And, mm-hmm. you know, just in basic, you know, teaching, but there's one little subclause in that, which is pretty funny from their perspective. And it says, for your husband is your maker, whose name is the Lord of hosts. So it's like the bride, you know, of God has a maker, right? right? So it's kind of funny. <laughs> yeah. So it just say, basically says, yeah. for your husband is your maker, whose name right. is the Lord of hosts, and your redeemer, the Holy One of Israel is also called the God of the earth. So the yep. idea of the, the, the groom is also the maker. And that just goes back to the fact that this is a theme throughout the whole Bible, that the bride of Christ, the, the wife of God, it's always, always the people of God, always the saints. And so why, when we get to Revelation, would that suddenly be another deity? That creates so many problems, not, not the least of which is that God would then become a polygamist, which we've, we've already talked about. But yeah, um, so Zion equals Jerusalem equals the people of God. Um, this is something that even Ju Chol Kim says uh, and teaches in his book that that Zion is the people of God. I don't think that's something that you guys, the WMSCOG, would debate necessarily. Right, because uh, they say Zion is the is the church that keeps God's festivals, but obviously church is not necessarily just you know building, but the people inside too. Yep. So so this this is just something I think this concept of Jerusalem being the people of God. It's just it's just the natural, logical, rational, biblical, consistent thing to do to just say when you see this not not only that it's Jerusalem who's the people of God all throughout the scriptures and now you're seeing in Revelation this reference to the heavenly Jerusalem it should be assumed that's the people of God but it's not only that but it's that this heavenly Jerusalem is also being referred to as the wife of the lamb and the wife of God right. which again you have these two consistent themes running all the way through scripture defining who this 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 new Jerusalem is both both uh the people of God being referenced as Jerusalem and the wife of God. And now you're seeing them connect in this one idea, but you're going to say, oh, well, that's that's mother God. That's a separate God. It's like, well, no, just be biblical. Like this is the people of God. It's the theme that runs throughout the entire Bible. Um, right. it, it's just, it's obvious. And so I think this is, this is such a neat study too. If you just, again, step away from the WMSCOG and study this concept for yourself. Look at, I think there's a lot of good resources that I wish I had links to right now. Um, I, I've got one link that I'll probably put in the description for um, a, it's, uh, a website where I got some information from that was helpful and just kind of explain some of these connections, the symbolism of the city and how that's obviously alluding to the saints. And so anyways, I would just recommend looking into this more for yourself. Just dive into this. It's a really neat and uh, interesting thing to study. Last thing, let's move through this quickly, Galatians 4, because what they move on to, again, in, in part two of chapter two, um, they the last kind of thing they emphasize is Galatians 4, 26, which says, but the Jerusalem that is above in heaven is free and she is our mother. So this is what they say in chapter two. They say in, in reply to that, Therefore, the bride does not refer to us, the saints, but but mother. Uh, the Bible testifies repeatedly that uh, the saints are the children of the free woman. So first, it's interesting that it says the Bible repeatedly testifies. I know. It doesn't. That, that, that <laughs> but is, they're talking that about is, Revelation yeah. too, but yeah. Okay. That's okay, what well, they mean by repeatedly. Yeah. But I, I mean, see. that's like, it's, 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 no, it's their yeah. piecing together of these verses. Yeah. Right. That yeah, are, nor- that, you know, that can be, yeah, it's, that's yep. what they mean. So I know we're going to have multiple thoughts. I want to start this out in response to Galatians 4 with, again, I'm going to quickly look at Aung San Hong again. I can't help but go to him, his thoughts on Galatians 4. So Aung San Hong, in that same book we've referenced over and over, this is what he says about Galatians 4. The only reason that the, the Apostle Paul wrote Galatians 4, 22 through 26 is to clarify that the history of the family of Abraham is a prophecy. 
Uh, Galatians 4.24 says, These things may be taken figuratively, for the women represent two covenants. One covenant is from Mount Sinai and bears children who are to be slaves. This is Hagar. And here's what Ong Song Hong says in response to Galatians 4.24, which is what I just read. He says, This is a prophecy of the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. Hagar refers to the law of Moses received on Mount Sinai and the Israelites of the flesh of the earthly Jerusalem, while Sarah refers to the new covenant. Okay, so Ong Song Hong saying the only, the only reason that the Apostle Paul wrote Galatians 4, 22 through 26 wasn't to speak about these different covenants and to point us to Mother God. The only reason right. Ong Song Hong says is because he wanted to convey this idea of the two covenants. And then he goes on again to say that Hagar uh, represents the old covenant, Sarah represents the new covenant. In essence, what he's saying is directly contradicting what the WMSCOG just said by saying that the the uh, the point of Galatians four isn't to say that the saints are children of a mother god, but that they're children of the new covenant. Um, right. Which which again. That could get us into a whole rabbit trail as well. I know it is because they say um, Passover is a new covenant, but yeah, right. <laughs> but the but the point there is that Ong Song Hong looked at Galatians four again, one of these foundational verses right. for the WMSCOG, and we see him time after time directly contradicting them. This is right. this is a problem, guys. You have to see that this is a problem. You have to be honest about this and, and read well, that book for yourself. And what I think is funny is that, I mean, it says in verse 24, it obviously says these things may be taken figuratively, right? So he's not saying, you know, take it literally or take one literally exactly. and one figuratively. He's saying exactly. both, the, what he's about to say is that this is figurative. So, but they say that Hagar is figurative for the old covenant, but then Sarah is literal, literal. for God the mother. It doesn't make right. sense. It's, it's I, you know, so if we're taking Sarah literally as God, representing God the mother, then we need to take Hagar, who's also a mother, literally, and that would imply that there are two mothers. And you so, um, I mean, but even when you see like the whole context of Galatians, the whole context of Galatians is Paul rebuking them for following the old covenant. Because he says that, you know, he, he repeatedly says before chapter four that, you know, um, those who follow, you know, the law of Moses, they're, they're slaves to it, right? And, um, like, I think the verse that I'm thinking of specifically is, duh, 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 um, duh, duh, yeah, chapter four, chapter four, verse three, it says, so also when we were children, we were in slavery under the basic principles of the world. But mm -hmm. when the time had fully come, God sent his son born of a woman born under the law to redeem those under the law that we might receive the full rights of sons because you are sons. God sent the spirit of the son into our hearts, the spirit who calls out Abba father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son, since you are a son, God has also made you an heir. And that's literally what it's talking about in Galatians 4, 24 through 26, is those under the old covenant, mm -hmm. the law of Christ, they are slaves. That's why they right. are compared to Ishmael, the child of Hagar, exactly. right? But then it says, you know, if we accept Christ, we are no longer a slave, but a son. So we are, we are not a slave, therefore we are free. That's why if we accept Christ... It says we are likened to Isaac, which is likened a child to of Sarah. Exactly. Yeah, in verse 28, it says, Now you brothers like Isaac are children of promise. Then verse 31, which they also show is, Therefore, brothers, we are not children of the slave woman, but of the free woman. We are children of the free woman because we are under Christ. So it doesn't, it's not talking about a literal God, the mother It's talking exactly. about when we accept Christ. That's exactly. what you get when you, I mean, again, I have like for me to understand that. I had to read all of Galatians, which yes. I had not done when I was in the church. I had just read bits and pieces of it, bits and pieces of what I was guided to by the right. organization. But when you read, when you see the whole context, it makes sense. Yeah, the whole purpose of Galatians, Paul is, like theologians will often say, Paul is acting as a task theologian. And that means he's specifically mm -hmm. addressing a problem that was in the church at that time. There was a heretical movement called the Judaizers, and they were a group inside the church who are trying to teach that you have to get back under the Old Testament law. Paul said, no, 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 no. He goes, you don't have to get under Old Testament law. The law is passed. Now we're under grace with Christ. And this Galatians right. 4 is illustration of that point. 
But what's really scary is in Galatians chapter one, when Paul introduces this chapter, he says, if anyone comes to you, preaches another gospel, and that's exactly what they're that doing. They're having a gospel condemned. of yeah. law and, and, and works instead of a gospel of grace. They say, if anyone come preach another gospel, let him be damned. And this is a mm-hmm. gospel of damnation being taught. This is another gospel that Paul warned you about and that he's making the point in Galatians 4. Uh, it's basically modern-day Judaizers trying to go back on Old yeah. Testament rituals and feasts and Passover and everything like that. We're, under the, we're no longer under the law. We're under grace. Yeah. It'd be so fun to just do a Bible study through Galatians just to show you the context. And that's that's what's so important mm-hmm. about about recognizing how like how ridiculously they just completely snatch a verse and take it just so grossly out of context. It really I'm using these exaggerated words, but it really is. It really is just like gross and just so I mean, terrible it's not even, what they do with the text. The one that they point out, yeah, it's yeah, it's literally one sentence. In an entire book, and, it, and, and it's like you, the- and like you emphasized, it, it, it specifically tells us what this pur- the purpose. Paul tells us what the purpose of what he's about to say is. Right. He says this is to be taken metaphorically or, or allegorically, symbolically, however you want to take it. And it's clear, mm-hmm. like you said, Steve, if you understand the context of Galatians, and this is something I've challenged members in the past who I've sat down with. I just said, you know, as we've walked away from conversations, I said. This is, you know, if you, what do you want me to go and study anything? And they've told me what they, they want me to go study. And I said, you go look at Galatians. Will you just go read through this entire book for yourself and ask, what is Paul trying to say? What's clear is that Paul has this uh, passionate emphasis on salvation by faith alone mm-hmm. in Christ alone and a complete passionate, like aggressive almost at times, uh, right. uh, rejection of, of anything that would come against that simplicity of faith in Christ. Um, saying things even like, I, you know, I wish these Judaizers would even just go and, you know, it's pretty, it's emasculate themselves. Like, like it, it, it's, it's pretty graphic. But, uh, but, but the clear purpose of Galatians is to contrast these two covenants. It's like these two ways of relating to God. You can relate to God through simple faith and you're, you're receiving that he loves me apart from me being able to work up enough love and, and like goodness to to prove how good I am so that he'll finally accept me. You can you can relate to God that way, or you can re- relate to God by simply believing in who he is and what he said, that he loves you freely. Um, and so Paul's emphasizing these, these contrasted ways of trying to earn your place with God through law, through works, or, try, or, or relating to God based on faith. Paul is simply saying, we are children of this way. Like we belong to this way. Like you are, you're connected. This is where you belong. This is your, your home. This is your mother is this way of relating to God to, to take that and say, Oh, mother, we got, we got a mother, heavenly Jerusalem, this, another God, we got a second God here. Like that is, that's just terrible Bible. Yeah, Paul said, who's bewitched Who is bewitched, you. yeah. And you have been bewitched. Right. And I'm going to throw it out there as a challenge to anyone who's still at this point in the video is that, you know, are you reading the Bible for truth or are you trying to read it for proof texting your way to a certain conclusion? Do you want to just get to that destination? They're trying to tell you, staying inside those fences, or are you going to really study the whole of scripture to find out what it really means? And then if you do see that there's not two deities, this older Korean woman, are you fearless enough to love the truth, to stand by the truth enough that you're going to basically go wherever the truth takes you? You know, are you going to be paralyzed by fear, guilt, and shame? Or are you going to have the integrity? Because you're answering to God. You're not doing this for yourself. You're not doing this for a family member or, you know, your deaconess or anybody. You're doing this because between you and God, because that's who you answer to. So as you read the Bible, you know, to get to the meaning exegetically, not eisegetically trying to read into it to get to a certain point, a proof text, you know, where are you arriving to? Are you, are you, are you able to read the Bible to get to whatever destination it takes you to? Or are you only going to read the Bible through a lens and with staying inside those fences that are going to take you to conclusions that you've been told is true? Yep. So they, they wrap up chapter two, the staff of Moses with a supplementary, uh, did we cover this already? Um, well, I mean, it's it's covered in the first the first main subject about the give. 
Well, okay. Can I let me make a comment on it? So basically, what they're doing, they have a little section at the end, and they're basically, you know, giving a kind of an analogy to make a point. So they're basically saying, mm -hmm. you know, that Moses. They're talking about the water life a lot in this chapter. So they're kind of saying Moses, you know, got upset, and then he took, the, you know, he smite the rock, smote the rock, and then he took, you know, you know, glory to himself to try to say that he created the water. And he said, mm -hmm. this is the same kind of badness that modern Babylonian right. Christendom is doing, you know, these are Jehovah's Witnesses. Which is a straw man. Yeah, so Again, basically saying, man. you know, if we're trying to say the water comes from the saints, which yeah. we're not, I'm not, I don't know any Christians who do that, but again, false witness basically, basically saying as Moses was banned to go into the, the new land because he took credit for giving the water in the Old Testament times, well, those who claim it's the saints giving out the water and not giving glory to God for it, they're going to pay a similar price. But, you know, this argument actually does them more harm than good. Because if you go to 1 Corinthians chapter 10, where Paul is talking about the count of Moses in the Old Testament, he basically says very clearly, says that all drank from the same spiritual drink, and they were all drinking from a spiritual rock which followed them, and the rock was Christ. Again, it's pointing to Christ. Mother wasn't the rock. The water didn't come from mother. Even in, in that time of Moses, the rock was Christ. It is the mm. same in, in Revelation. The water That's is not coming from, yeah, the water is not coming from mother. John chapter 7, clearly, it doesn't come from an elderly Korean woman. It's coming from Christ. And in 1 Corinthians 10, which they, you know, uh, interestingly leave off, it's not talking conveniently. It's not talking, again, it's talking about Christ being the source of the water. So they end, they conclude by, uh, in the supplementary explanation, they say, why do you think there is no verse in the Bible which says that the saints, prophets, or apostles give the water of life? Uh, what will happen to those who say that the saints give the water of life, which only God can give? So this is, again, this is a straw man. We do not believe that the bride is giving the water of life. That's the exact whole point of, of why we disagree, why Christians disagree with you, because it's clearly the church, and there's no indication in that verse that they are giving uh, the water of life. So my question back would be, why, uh, why do you think there is no verse in the Bible uh, they said, why do you think there's no verse in the Bible that says the saints give the water of life? I'd say, uh, because there's not. Uh, why do you think there's no verse in the Bible that says the bride gives the water of life? That wouldn't be my question back to you. Um, and so kind of to summarize, what we've said is, one, Revelation twenty two seventeen. there is no indication in that verse that the bride is the one giving the water of life. That's an assumption that is contradicted in the very next statement when it says that those who hear are also uh, saying, come. There's no reason to believe the bride is, there's no more reason to believe that the bride is giving the water of life than there is to believe that the ones who are hearing are giving the water of life. Um, second, we, we, we talked about how the only time Revelation tells us uh, specifically who it is that is giving the water of life, it's the lamb. In Revelation 21, five through seven, it's Christ who gives the water of life. Um, and then we talk about how if you actually are honest and do an exegesis type of approach to the Bible, you're going to see that uh, both the bride of Christ, the wife of God, and Jerusalem are, are always referencing uh, the people of God. And so biblically, the biblical, the logical, the rational uh, uh, conclusion about who this new Jerusalem is, I think, is, is obviously this is the saints. Which, Ong Song Hong, another point we've made, Ong Song Hong agrees with that. Um, and so the last thing we just covered is Galatians 4, that, that we, we see that they take that wildly out of context. They miss the point. Again, they, they completely contradict Ong Song Hong's own teaching on that passage. And, uh, and they completely miss the context um, of that scripture. The last point I would want to make, and then I'll let you guys give any closing thoughts if you want, is I would just simply say we are saying all this. Um, because we love you, because we, we really care about you guys, because we, we believe that there's a better way. <laughs> there, there's a better way to relate to the Bible. There's a better way to relate to God. There's a peace uh, that you can have from knowing him that the WMSCOG just simply can't offer. Um, they cannot lead you to that living water. This Zongil Ja, this South Korean, Korean woman, uh, elderly woman, she, she cannot give you the water of life. Uh, 
She doesn't know your names. You have to wear a name tag. She can't hear your prayers. I think these things just should be, they go without saying. It's like, it's just obvious. There's only one person who can give the water of life. And that's the person who the Bible tells us gives us the water of life, which is Jesus, who is the, the water of life. He is living water. Any final thoughts on that, guys? I mean, I just want to add, you know, again, you know, don't be afraid to read the context in which verses are written. I mean, it's a, it took me a while before I got to the, the verses around, you know, before and after the, the key ones that the WMSCOG pointed me to. So don't be afraid to, to read the context and, you know, ask questions. If you see something that is not in line uh, within the context of, of, or if you see something that is not in line with the WMSCOG teachings, Within the context of the the verse, you know, ask questions. Say, right. why doesn't this matter? Why doesn't this add up? But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through the promise. Now this may be interpreted allegorically. These women are two covenants. So Paul, right before, says this is an allegory and this is two covenants. So Paul's explaining what this is and it's very clear and I, uh, I thought we had tried to talk on that with them before. Um, so this is just another uh, thing they go to when it comes to the mother where you need to stop and challenge everything they're showing you in context. Yep. And, and don't even, as we talk about how they get you disoriented and they go around, I think uh, something with love and gentleness would be to say, wait, stop, can we read this? I wanna understand it better. Don't let, don't let them carry on, stay there. And so here you would be able to say, it says allegorically. Well, I wonder why Paul said it's an allegory. Yep. In Galatians, again, nobody disagrees that the whole issue is faith versus works. And so when he says here that these women, uh, that, that this story of Hagar and Sarah, of Ishmael and Isaac, this is to be taken allegorically or metaphorically, or it's, an it's a spiritual metaphor again. It's, it's, this isn't a literal thing where you have a literal mother. This is a, there's a spiritual connotation to what I'm saying. So according to this, yes. it's the new covenant yes. is our mother. The new covenant, which, which is uh, relating to God or getting righteousness on the basis of faith in Jesus Christ. And, and the old, uh, and Hagar, uh, Mount Sinai is a spiritual picture of, of trying to relate to God on the basis of works of the law. This has absolutely nothing right to do with Mother God. You have been listening to The Great Light Podcast. To find more information and resources or to watch our films, go to greatlightstudios.com or find us on Facebook and YouTube. If you want to support this program and partner with the Ministry of Great Light Studios, you can do so through our website. There you can also find both video and audio versions of this podcast. <laughs>